Psalm 33. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. Father in heaven, we thank you for these powerful images of you and your creation of the heavens and the earth. And we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning as we meditate on your holy word. Amen. 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 Well, I want to begin this morning by telling you guys about an interaction I had with two of my nephews a few years back. I told this story at Food for Thought, and I thought it was particularly appropriate for today. Now, neither of my nephews, these particular nephews, go to church or would identify as Christians, um, but my big sister doesn't mind when I talk to them about the Lord. So one day we were sitting in a restaurant, and they were probably about seven and nine years old, and I asked, do you guys know that all scientists now agree that the universe had a beginning? And they said, yes. And they probably did know that because they're pretty smart. <clears throat> So I said, well, imagine with me for a moment a room with nothing in it, no, no bed, no lamp, no, no carpet, no nothing, not even darkness. And so they're thinking about that. And I said, now, if no one else ever opened the door and put something in it, what would be in that room if you checked back in an hour? Nothing. They replied. I said, well, what if you check back in a day? Nothing. What if you check back in a year? Nothing. I said, all right. Well, hold on a second. What if you checked back in 100,000 years? What would be in that room? Nothing, they answered. So I said, well, if that's true, then you know what's amazing? Everything. <laughs> that the universe actually exists instead of nothing. And their eyes began to light up. And I said, it seems to me that something can't come from nothing. If the universe had a beginning, it can't start itself. It can't sort of reach back to a time before it existed and cause itself. It had to have a cause that was outside of the universe. And they nodded. They seemed to like that idea. <laughs> so I asked, well, what do you think caused the universe to exist? And without blinking, they just said, God. I said, I agree. That's what I think. G.K. <laughs> Chesterton, the 20th century British writer and intellectual, summarized the point I made to my nephews in this way. He said, for those who really think there is always something really unthinkable about the whole evolutionary cosmos. As the materialists conceive it, because it's something coming out of nothing. An ever-increasing flood of water pouring out of an empty jug. It is absurd for the evolutionists to complain that it's unthinkable for an admittedly unthinkable God to make everything out of nothing 
and then pretend that it's more thinkable that nothing should turn itself into everything. I share these things because for the next few months, we're going to be preaching out of the first 12 chapters of Genesis. And today, I want to begin at the very beginning. Nothing is more beautiful than Genesis, wrote Martin Luther. Nothing more useful. The name Genesis means origin or source. And that's an appropriate name, not only because it tells of the origins of the heavens and the earth, but also because Genesis is like the source of a great river out of which the doctrines of the faith flow like streams. Even a single verse or a turn of a phrase in Genesis can have far-reaching biblical import. The apostles Paul and John and even the Lord Jesus himself constantly point us back to the very beginning as being normative for our understanding of theology and what it means to be human and how to live. In fact, the first 12 chapters of Genesis are quoted or alluded to approximately 35 to 40 times in the New Testament. The opening chapters of Genesis are so basic to the Bible that I like to think of them as like a bullion cube, sort of a concentrated dose of theological truth, meaning, morality, all in this little spicy cube with a flavor that gets diffused throughout the rest of Scripture that influences every part of the story after it. So the next few months we'll be talking about creation, rest, work, manhood and womanhood, marriage and sex, science and history, judgment, sacrifice, redemption, and covenant, just to name a few things. <laughs> and we're going to be talking about the original paradise, the fall of man, Cain murdering Abel, the flood, the Tower of Babel, the call of Abraham, just to name a few stories. But even amidst these soaring themes and some of the world's most famous and recognizable stories, our first and most crucial topic when studying the Bible, both here and ever after, is the God of creation. The Bible is a revelation about the one creator God. God is the ever-present protagonist in Genesis and the central figure of creation. In fact, from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 3, the divine name occurs 35 times, an average of more than once per verse. And as a way of introducing our series this morning, I want to talk about seven massive truths that we learn about God just in the first five verses. So please grab a pew Bible and turn with me. This is going to be really easy. <clears throat> to page one. And the first two things we learn in Genesis 1.1 is that God is eternal and that there's only one God. Verse 1 says, in the beginning, God. Full stop. So before we notice anything else, we notice that God was already there already existed, was already fully himself in his divinity. No need for growth 
or development and was not dependent on any other being for his existence. John Stott says, No reader can fail to be struck by the majestic simplicity of the first sentence of Genesis. God is introduced without apology, without explanation, without proof or definition. And the God we meet here is eternal. Before anything in all creation, whether the heavens or the earth, before all matter, before all spiritual realities, before all time, God was already there. In contrast, creation is finite. There was a time when it was not. God alone is infinite and eternal, his existence spanning forever in both directions. For this reason, the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard declared the difference between God and the rest of creation is not finite or sort of quantitative. Instead, there's an infinite qualitative difference between God and everything else in creation. Kierkegaard writes, The fundamental error of modern times lies in the fact that the yawning abyss of quality and the difference between God and man has been removed. The result in dogmatic theology is a mockery of God. Chris and I have been watching this show, The Good Place, <laughs> recently, and uh, it kind of follows these people as uh, they're in the afterlife. And one of the most striking and consistent themes in the show is how very human-like all the heavenly realities are. Just sort of prone to error. They make mistakes. They fumble things. All this sort of stuff. We like to create God in our own image, don't we? Instead of submitting that we are created in his image. Now, even more surprising than God's eternal existence is this idea, unique to the Hebrews in the ancient world, that there is in fact only one God. The Jewish people were the first true monotheists, and Genesis 1, the self-revelation of the one creator God, stands apart as utterly unique among the polytheistic creation accounts of the ancient Near East. One of the earliest such accounts is called the Seven Tablets of Creation, originating in Mesopotamia during the second millennium BC. And it describes a male and female deity present at the beginning who create a water, watery chaos, bringing forth other deities who then war against them. And so first, the original male deity is dethroned and murdered. And next, the god Marduk, the tallest and handsomest of the gods, with four eyes and four ears, wars against the woman, Tiamat. I want to quote from the account, but be forewarned, it's not for the faint of heart. It says, Then joined issue Tiamat and Marduk, wisest of the gods. They strove in single combat, locked in battle. He released the arrow. It tore her belly. It cut through her inside, splitting her heart. Having thus subdued her, he, he extinguished her life. He cast down her carcass to stand upon it. The Lord trod on the legs of Tiamat. With his unsparing mace, he crushed her skull. He split her like a shellfish into two parts. Half of her he set up and sealed up for the sky. 
and so on, and so on. These are the kind of violent and absurd myths that circulated in the ancient Near East around the time that Abraham walked the earth. But what a different revelation his own ancestors would come to believe. Genesis 1 is a story of order, beauty, peace, goodness, and sovereign power. In Genesis 1, the sun and moon are not rival deities, as some of the other religions of the ancient Near East claimed, but they're simply a part of God's creative tapestry. God's not dependent on them in other way. In fact, he creates light before he even creates the sun and the moon. He creates light on the first day and the sun and the moon on the fourth day. And this brings us to our third point, that there is not only one eternal God, but that this God is the solo creator of the heavens and the earth. Continuing on in verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In other words, God created the entire cosmos, everything in the universe, both known and unknown to us, visible and invisible. In fact, the Hebrew word for created, bara, used here in Genesis 1-1, is restricted to God and God alone throughout the Bible. It's never used to describe the activity of any other being. And all this really underscores the reality that there's only one true creator. Now, true, the devil can pervert creation, causing it to be used in ways that God did not intend. But the enemy cannot create anything new. He doesn't have that power. As Christians, we're not dualists. True, human beings can be creative. They can use matter and energy that God created in order, in order to and sort of organize it in beautiful and inventive ways. But we can never create bara in the fullest sense of the word by bringing something out of nothing. But in Genesis 1.1, there was no raw material to work with. There was only God. And he created everything ex nihilo, out of nothing as is affirmed by Hebrews 11, verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, as we move from verse 1 to verse 2, the scope of the narrative shifts from the whole universe of time and space that God has just created to the special care that God takes in forming the earth. And this really remains the focus for most of the rest of the chapter. I think it's true to say that Genesis 1 is a geocentric, an earth-centered account of creation. And that's not surprising considering that the Bible is God's self-revelation to man, and this is our home. Sometimes we get little hints of characters or other parts of the story of creation, like spiritual conflict between fallen angels and God's loyal heavenly hosts. But these glimpses are rare and only come insofar as they intersect our own story. So verse 2 sort of zooms in on the earth. It says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the verses that follow describe its transformation from a place of formlessness, emptiness, and darkness to a place fit for man to dwell in. 
But what does verse 2 mean, formless and void? In Hebrew, let's say with Sarah, tohu vavohu. All right. That's right. I like that image she gave of a whole bunch of Legos that have not been formed together. It's a box of mixed up Legos. That's great. I, uh, I also uh, like what uh, Bernard Ram says in his book, A Christian View of Science and Scripture. He says that it corresponds to the assembling of the raw materials by the manufacturer, the collection of the oils, easels, and canvas by the painter, or the selection and setting up of the marble block by the sculptor. And this brings us to the fourth point, that God is transcendent. And this means that God exists apart from the universe, is separate from all creation, and is not subject to the boundaries and limitations of it. In physics, the first law of thermodynamics states that energy can neither be created nor destroyed by anything within a system. And with this point, the scriptures are in full agreement. Genesis 1 affirms that the whole cosmos, everything in the universe, was created by someone that existed outside of the system. To use an analogy from the book Winnie the Pooh by A.A. A. Milne, in the book, Tigger doesn't transcend Pooh just because he can jump over him. Right? An owl doesn't transcend Pooh and Tigger just because he can fly over them. Now there is a transcendent figure in this picture. No, it's not Piglet. It's the author himself. A.A. Milne stands outside the system and is not subject to the same limitations. In a similar way, God stands outside the universe, stands outside of the system and the story. God is transcendent and as such is not subject to the same rules and limitations. The scriptures are very clear on this point, actually. After Solomon builds the temple in 1 Kings verse 8, he wonders aloud piously, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built... Likewise, Isaiah 40, verse 22 declares, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Now, all of this might sound obvious to us, but the transcendence of God is not a given for everyone. In fact, throughout human history, there have been two very different ideas about the relationship between God and the universe. So pantheists, so people like um, Hindus and Buddhists, uh, the philosopher Heraclitus and many others have maintained that God and the universe are the same thing. The universe is God and God is the universe. Now, sometimes this relationship is described in mythological language, like saying the river Ganges is the hair of the gods. But pantheists have also equated the universe with God, and they've tended to believe for that reason that the universe was without a beginning and will never have an end. On the other hand, theists, like Judeo-Christians, have maintained that God and the universe are separate. 
that the universe had a beginning, will have an end, and that God is the transcendent creator and the sustainer of all. So for this reason, creation and anything in creation is never absolute. Only God is. Creation ought never to be, never to be worshipped. Only God should. The next point is that God is triune. Yes, there is only one God. But the testimony of Scripture is that this one being exists eternally in three distinct persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. From ancient times, the church has noticed hints of the doctrine of the Trinity in these opening verses of Genesis. And these hints are echoed in the Nicene Creed that we say most Sundays. For example, in verse 1, we learn that we learn of God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. In verse 2, we meet the Holy Spirit, who, just like at the baptism of Jesus, appears like a dove hovering or brooding over the face of the waters. As the creed declares, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. And then in verse 3, in a less direct and obvious way, we meet God the Son, the Logos, the Word of God. Verse 3 says, and God said, let there be light. And just as the Son of God would eventually be manifest in the flesh, here the thoughts of God... All his ideas about creation are made manifest through the spoken word. Jesus is the intermediary between God and creation. So that everything that is created in Genesis is created by the word. As the creed says, through him all things were created. The Gospel of John captures this point in the first three verses. Stating, in the beginning was the Word. Now, some have said that the authors of the New Testament were not really aware that they were writing Scripture. But you better believe that when the Apostle John sat down and wrote, in the beginning, he knew what he was up to. (laughs) In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. With God was God. It's a very interesting relationship. It's like the relationship between thought and words. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, through the word, and without him was not anything made that was made. Now someone might respond, well, the Bible contains much clearer teachings on the Trinity than we find here in Genesis 1. And I would agree. But it also seems significant that we find hints of this doctrine straight out the gate in the first few verses of Scripture. Number six. And this is a major point in Genesis 1 that I think John will explore a bit bit more next week. And that is the fact that God is sovereign. God is almighty. God is omnipotent. The King of kings and Lord of lords. Consider the sovereign power of God displayed in creation. His mere words are enough to accomplish his will. Psalm 33, 6 declares, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth... All their hosts. Again and again we read, and God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. And with no further effort or exertion, God's creative commands are met with complete metaphysical obedience. 
By a word, the stars burst into existence. By a word, the laws of science are set in motion. And because God is the sovereign king, all his words are completely efficacious. They always accomplish exactly what he intends for them to accomplish. According to Genesis, the universe doesn't owe its existence to some heavenly warfare, as so many of the pagan stories taught, but to the free and sovereign acts of the Creator's will. All right, last one, number seven. In the opening verses of Genesis, we learn that God is good. And our first clue to this fact is the fact that everything he creates is good. Verse 4 says, and God saw that the light was good. And this affirmation, it was good, it was good, it was good, is repeated at each point in creation until we get to the end in verse 31. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. Very good. That's right. Our second clue about the goodness of God is more metaphorical. Verse 4 continues, And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now this sharp categorical distinction that God makes between darkness and light is, is here in Genesis 1 just a matter of waves and particles. But as we read on in Scripture, this idea takes on a moral dimension. We learn that God is just as eager to distinguish good from evil. And he separates the two. Whether by geography, east of Eden, by judgment, under the waters, or by righteous laws transcribed upon tablets. The God of creation is also the God of Mount Sinai. But God is not simply the arbitrator of good and evil, as if he's merely the one who makes such distinctions. God is also himself the source of all goodness. He is altogether benevolent in his nature. This is what the Apostle John means when he summarizes the message that the disciples learned from Jesus in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. He says, this is how he summarizes what they learned from Jesus in person. This is the message we heard from him, he says, and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. This is a statement of God's utter and absolute moral perfection. There is no defect in God's character that we have to worry about. We can't fully know God and every part about him, just like you can't dump the ocean into a bucket. But even the parts that we can't see, we can trust 100% that there is no moral defect in God. God has never had an evil intention pass through his holy mind. He's never done something or commanded something or made a judgment about something that was mixed with even a tinge of evil. Another way to put it is that God is morally unassailable. In him there is no darkness at all. Anyone who ever has or ever will have a charge against God. And even some of the saints in the Bible have doubts from time to time and bring their charges against God. I'm not saying that it's unforgivable. But on a foundational level, we must reckon with the fact that God is never wrong. And he's always, always, always good. 
We will never love our loved ones or even ourselves the way that God loves us. Is that the way you view God? If not, then your view is too low. And we need to revisit this foundational testimony of Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, and the foundational witness of Genesis 1. Allow me to summarize as I draw to a close. A.W. Tozer once said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I think this is manifestly true. We become more like whatever we worship. And we imitate that which we admire most. So in this sense, true knowledge of God is the most practical thing of all. So I wonder if when we think about God, we think of a being who is eternal and transcendent, existing outside of time, a qualitatively different being than anything else in creation. I wonder if we think of a sovereign king who is able to fling stars into existence by the breath of his mouth. I wonder if we think of a God who is one being, but is also relational, eternally existing in three distinct persons. Do we think of a God who is utterly good, pure light, distinguished from all darkness? If not, then we're thinking of some other God than the God of the Bible, who is so glorious, re gloriously revealed in these opening verses. I began this morning with a story about my nephews, how I reasoned with them that something can never come from nothing, that there must be a first cause. But if this is true, then just who or what set it all in motion? Who was the unmoved mover? Isn't it reasonable? To suppose that such a being is eternal and transcendent, existing before all things and outside of time? Isn't it reasonable to suppose that he's sovereign and creative since he had the power to create such a beautiful universe? Isn't it reasonable to suppose he's willful, able to make choices, personal, since he created personal beings, and also intelligent, benevolent, and glorious beyond all reckoning? But aren't these the very things that the Bible claims about God in Genesis chapter 1? Just so. May the Lord help us to lean in in these next few months. Mm -hmm.